Good morning. Let's follow along as we are reading the scripture, the holy word from Matthew 12, 9 to 14. Jesus went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Jonathan. Glad you can be here. We are in a series that we have entitled Messy Stories, Faithful God. And I hope that encourages you, especially if you're outside of Christianity, thinking about do I fit within the narrative of Christianity? But is there space for me in my life and my storyline? The answer is resoundingly yes. If you think that it does not fit, then you actually have not examined Christianity. You may be listening to a caricature of Christianity that says that only the good, holy people, the righteous people, the moral people, the kind people somehow fit within the space of the church. But this was not Jesus' mentality. This is not what he said. He clearly said, I have come for the people who are not well because the people who are well have no need of a physician. He goes, I'm looking for the people whose lives are not quite put together where difficult things have happened, where there are repetitious patterns in their life that they are looking to be free from, but in their own effort, they can't. This is the Jesus of Christianity, and this is what we're looking at, is messy stories, but faithful God. And I'm very excited to be looking at this story from Matthew 12 today. I've entitled today's sermon, Self-Forgetting. And it does not have a lot to do with being a forgetful person, phone, keys, wallets, children's names, all the usual suspects. My oldest walks into breakfast and I'm like, I know you from somewhere, right? We are forgetful people. What we're going to be looking at today, though, is the very difficult, socially unpopular, humanly impossible principle of being so free that I forget about myself. I've become so free that I am not preoccupied with myself. Society tells us that life revolves around you, that your preferences and your opinions and your feelings and your decisions ought to be guided by your own standards and by your own self-selected values. But this way of structuring life and relationships has left us, you ready, wandering suspicious of authority and people who are different than we are, less neighborly and tribalized. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize where we are as a society. But the Bible points to another way, what we're going to call today the way of self-forgetting, the way of letting go of your ego because something else has filled the vacuum of identity and significance in your life. So I'm going to take you through two movements today. Number one, letting go. And number two, pulling in. All right? Letting go 
And then there is something in its space and its place that you're going to have to pull in. So those two points, letting go, pulling in. I'm going to read from the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, not what was read a moment ago, but the beginning of the chapter to set a little bit of context. So if you have a Bible, the first few verses of Matthew 12. Here's what we read. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. This point in the narrative, Jesus' reputation is, is beginning to spread and he's becoming a polarizing voice. Very important that you recognize that when you read through the Gospels. Jesus is becoming a polarizing figure. The crowds seem to love him. He is the people's champion. He is for the least and the lost. He is approachable and kind. He has dinners and lunches, breakfast, coffees out with tax collectors and sinners. He engages with women. In a culture, this would have been taboo and unexpected. He gives audience to children, but Jesus also leans against the religious establishment. And they've noticed and they don't like it. And one of the key areas that they have been leaned against is Sabbath, Sabbath keeping. Jesus has a lot of conversations on the Sabbath, about Sabbath. Generally, when this happens, he is being accused of being a lawbreaker. So that's a bit of the context of what's going on right here. Matthew tells us that Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. They probably have hands out like this. They catch a few of the tops of those heads of grain, probably push them in their hands, do a little bit of work on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees don't seem to have much of a life because while Jesus and his men are walking through the fields, they're like, oh, no, no, I see them. I see what they're doing. Like they're taking notes and they're writing it down and they bring this accusation against Jesus and his men. Let me say up front, Jesus was not anti-Sabbath. Jesus understood that the Sabbath had been given for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath laws, if you know nothing about them, if this concept is new for you, one of the things that we are beginning to talk about as a church is the concept of Sabbath because we are desperately exhausted, mentally, physically, emotionally. God has given us one day in seven to be able to rest, to stop, to delight, to enjoy him, and to worship. What does that actually look like? That's one of our key practices of formation here at our church. Jesus is in no way anti-Sabbath. Sabbath laws were for renewal and refreshment of working people. Are you working people? Then Sabbath is for you. It's supposed to draw limits around productivity to reinforce your identity as God's people, not as producers of goods and services. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like a cog in the wheel? Like, I'm just a producer of a good and a service. Sabbath is for you. It's these whispers to the human heart that it's necessary and good to stop, rest, delight, and worship. Dale Bruner says this, God's purpose in the Sabbath commandment is the good of human beings, to give them a rest, time to be and not just to do, and time for worship, which is the world's most healthful reality. It is biblical to do good on the Sabbath that the Pharisees even have to be told this elemental truth shows the pit into which they have fallen in their Bible interpretation. Bit of background. 
Sabbath controversy, conversation with Jesus. Matthew keeps the conversation going, and we shift from the grain fields to the synagogue, still on the Sabbath. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, He went on from there, and he entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. This is where we're going to spend our time thinking about his story. And they asked him, this is Jesus, is it lawful, which means biblical, is it biblical, Jesus, to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? As Jesus shifts from being outside to being inside, he enters into the synagogue. We are introduced to this man who is described as having a withered hand. He is carrying a long-term chronic disability. Now, of course, he's living within an agrarian society, and within his society, to not have two working hands would have been a major liability for anybody who's going to serve as your employer. And so like prize fighter James Braddock, he's played by Russell Crowe in the movie Cinderella Man. When he breaks his hand, when he breaks his wrist in a boxing match, he can no longer go and fight to provide for the family. So he goes down to the docks to provide for his family. But you know what he does with that broken wrist and that broken hand is he, right, he hides it. He didn't want the employer to see it because the employer says, if I'm going to hire you, you got one good hand. This guy's got two good hands. I'm going to get double the amount of work out of this person, obviously more valuable. So this becomes the ultimate liability for this man. Not only were there social implications around his disability, be it work, be it career, be it family, there were also in this time, and maybe even in ours, there were spiritual implications around this disability. There would have been all these suspicions and pessimism, especially for the religious folk in the room. They would have been wondering, what has this man done in a previous life? What have his family members done, his mother or his father? What wrong is he hiding that this man is now carrying this long-term disability? All this suspicion, all this question, really all this dark negative pessimism around disability. Has he done something wrong? We see evidence of this in Luke chapter 13, where it's a current events moment, and the disciples lean into Jesus, and they say, hey, did you hear about that tower? It's in Siloam. Yeah, it fell on 18 people. Did they do something wrong? Are they worse people than other sinners? Right? Like all these social implications for his disability, all these spiritual implications for his withered hand. This would have been the most impactful and agenda-setting part of his life. It would have been the most sensitive topic, the part of his story that he prefers to ignore and to keep hidden, this part that he would do anything to make it go away, to fix it, to control it, to redeem it. But generally, he walks around right, trying to hide this part of his life. And in front of that synagogue crowd, Jesus is asked this question, is it biblical, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? We're reading from Matthew's gospel, but if you were to read from Mark's gospel, he gives us a little bit of additional detail about this conversation, what's going on in the synagogue. Mark tells us that Jesus calls the man with the withered hand up front while he's talking to the religious authorities. And this guy's got to be thinking to himself, man, it's daylight savings time. I should have slept in today. 
I do not want to be in front of these people right now. What is Jesus going to do? What's he going to say? But as he hears Jesus speaking, no doubt he's never heard anybody speak like this. And he's starting to think to himself, man, there's nobody like Jesus. And there is nobody like this guy. What is he going to do? I've heard some stories. I don't really want to be standing here in front of all these people with this part of my life that I have a controlled narrative about. I'd like to keep that part of my life hidden. But I'm up here having to speak or having to at least listen, listen to Jesus speak. And then Jesus says something to this man. He says to him, stretch out your hand. Right, that's sensitive. Subject, that prideful hiding, that controlled narrative that you have maintained about your life, that extreme self-preservation, stretch out your hand. See, Jesus is saying, you ready? Let it go. That's what he's saying. Let it go. Let it all go. What are you talking about, Jesus? He goes, let it die. What, Jesus? What do you want me to let go and let die? The answer is your life. All of it. Your ego. Your pride. Your pain. Yourself. That thing at the center of your life. Let it go. This is how Jesus puts it in Matthew 10. Jesus says, whoever, ready, finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know what it says in the message translation? If your first concern is to look after yourself, you're never going to find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you will find both yourself. As one preacher put it, this man got caught up in Jesus and he let go of things he'd been trying to control his whole life. He forgot about himself for a moment and he stretched out that hand. Is there a part of your life that is controlling your agenda? It's a source of pain. It could be a dream. It could be a person. It could be a fear. It could be a shame. That the Lord is asking you to stretch out in front of him. Part of your life. Part of your story. No, 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 no. I'm going to keep that part hidden, Jesus. Don't you understand? Like, I've lived with it a long time. It's just become part of my routine. He says, stretch it out. Not so I can harm you, but so that I can begin the process of healing you. David Thomas He says awakening. Listen, and our church is thinking about awakening right now. We are thinking about what it means to come alive to God, to be hungry for his presence. Guess what? You are not at the mall right now. You go to the mall and you don't expect to be transformed. You are in the presence of the living God and his word is being spoken over you. You ought to have full expectation that I'm letting things go here today. I'm leaving different. Your God's not dead. Your God is alive 
and well. Come into this space. Live your life as a follower of Jesus with the full expectation that I will be different. The enemy wants you to believe that the Christianity that you have experienced, possibly to this point, is normalized. Let me say it's not. It's been muted. We live in a moment where the culture is pressing hard against belief. It's not your fault. This is just where we are and where we live. We do not live in a dynamic God moment. We live in a moment that's saying, push him aside. How foolish. Why would you do that? Put yourself at the center. There's nothing else to pull in. And a Christian says, I will refuse, even though it's hard, to believe that that's the truest narrative of my life. It's not the truest narrative of our lives. You are here to encounter the living God. This is what David Thomas says. Awakening is messy and costly to people who love it and long for it. You ready? Reputation is often the first thing to go. Jesus taught that our seeds have to die before anything will grow. And maybe it comes to mind what it is you may need to bury for awakening to spring up. Maybe it's distraction, maybe it's pride, maybe it's an attitude of expertise, self-sufficiency, being hip, affluence, avoidance, ease, letting go so that Jesus can get in and transform that sensitive, painful, controlled, avoided part of your life. Stretch out your hand, right? Part two, pulling in. Right, letting go and pulling in. Let's look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy, like the other, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's be very honest as we get into point two, that letting go of that part of your life, that sensitive controlled narrative that you have maintained control of is very difficult because the human heart is so complex. The human ego is so complex. In his pamphlet, The Freedom of self-forgetfulness, highly recommended. Tim Keller describes the ego as empty, painful, busy, and fragile. We'll talk about those very briefly. The ego, empty, painful, busy, and fragile. And let's think about it like this. Let's assume that it is your first day at a new job. You have been recommended uh, you have been recruited, now you have been hired, and while you are thrilled, you are also naturally nervous because this is your first day, new job, new industry. This is a new space for you. And you may have been known elsewhere, highly respected, but now it feels like you are literally starting from scratch and you can palpably feel the emptiness of your ego when you walked in on day one. You can feel its insecurities rising. You can sense that space in your heart and your chest that needs to be filled up with something, right? The ego knows that it's empty. Christian, non-Christian, you know that you have to pull something in to the center of your life. The ego and the heart is empty, but it's also easily 
pained. I have shared this story, so I won't go into depth. But on the first day, the first Sunday of my new job after our family moved from Boston to Redeemer, somebody asked me if I was the new youth pastor at Redeemer, and it some, for some reason, it offended my ego. It hurt me. Why did it hurt me? Keller writes, this is because the parts of our body only draw attention to themselves if there is something wrong with them, right? It, it hurt. You could feel the pain. Listen, I can go for weeks, if not months, and never notice my elbow. Are you with me? Like, you, you don't go to bed at night and go, man, I thought about my elbow all day today. Unless you've got tennis elbow or your pinky toe, unless you've got something wrong with you, or the back of your leg, unless you pulled it. You are not thinking about your earlobe or your elbow because it doesn't hurt. But the moment it hurts, you can't stop thinking about it. Why can't we stop thinking about ourselves? Maybe it's because there's something wrong. Right? We're supposed to pull something else to the center. Can't stop thinking about myself. There's pain involved in the ego. Because we can't stop thinking about ourselves. The key phrase is, I can't stop. That means I'm very busy. I like there's so much emotional energy being used up. I am very busy in this new space on my first day trying to figure out how I'm going to get ahead, how I'm going to make a name for myself, who I can compete against, right? who's my competitor, what am I going to do to be better than, because that's what it means to be, to have an ego. It's not that just that we have something coming in, it's that I'm better than somebody else. I have to have a baseline to compare to. And then lastly, this means our ego is so fragile because at the end of the day when we've done well, we sleep well, but if it has not been a good day, you're thinking deeply about yourself. You're pained and fragile. I'm going to date myself with this, but I read a quote by Madonna. Anybody know who Madonna Gen Z, you know who Madonna is? Madonna? All right, here we go. Madonna said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. It's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will, she says. And that phrase is so telling. She says, even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. It's baked into each of us, that incessant desire to belong or to be accepted, to add value, or really to be seen as valuable. The dark side of this is a life of fear that I'm not going to be accepted just for being, that my crew, my family, my coworkers are going to accept me because I contribute because of what I do and what I add. And there's something within the human heart that says, but what if I stop being a producer? Will you still love me? Right? You know that that's inside of your life, inside of your heart. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees, of course, they're still trying to debate the Sabbath. Do you know that Jesus has kind of moved on? He's not thinking about the Sabbath anymore. He's thinking about this man with a withered hand. Go back to verse 11. And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? 
if you want to know anything about Jesus Christ, you know what he's doing? He's always adding value to people's lives. This is the God of Christianity. Jesus is consistently pouring value into people's lives. Notice that when Jesus brings this man up front and he speaks with them in front of the crowd, this withered hand, there is no performance review. There's no list of credits and demerits. Yes, he has only one good hand and in the eyes of the world, he may be only half as productive and therefore only half as valuable, but Jesus will not agree. This man's life and character and past and present are not being weighed. Man, this is what Jesus said. Sheep are awesome. I made them. This man is worth infinitely more. That's what he's saying. And in that statement, Jesus undermines self-righteousness, moralism, and religiosity. If by religiosity we are saying that we have to impress our God. And what he does is he replaces them with grace. In a recent article by Scott Sauls, he quotes New York City Mayor Bloomberg. Here's what Sauls writes. Back in 2014, the former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, made a stunning statement. It was in the middle of a speech in which he was reflecting on his own legacy at the age of 72. He spoke about initiatives he had spearheaded in to reduce obesity, eliminate secondhand smoke from public spaces, and neuter gun violence on the streets. In each instance, Mayor Bloomberg had demonstrated a desire to promote human health, safety, and flourishing. The surprising part of his speech was the takeaway in which he speculated about the afterlife. He said, and I quote, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Maybe you listen to that, you go, where's the strangeness of that quote? Isn't that how heaven works? Isn't that what God is up to? Every other major religious system says, yes, this is what God is up to, that he's taking tally that you have to accomplish, you have to be somebody. Do you know that Christianity alone is the religion that says this is not true? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let me illustrate it like this. The apostle Paul is writing to young Christians, letting them know that he has found the secret of letting go. There are secrets and God wants to share them with you. And the Apostle Paul has found the secret of letting go. He has entered this treasure trove of goodness that has released his heart from the pressures of performance and proving and accomplishment. Here's what Paul writes. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any other human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. You know what he's saying? I am not going to be held hostage in the courtroom of public opinion, is what he's saying. I don't care what you think about me. But then he takes another step and he goes, I actually don't even care what I think about me. What? How would you have a sense of identity? He goes, I'm not looking outward. I'm not looking inward. I care what God says about me. 
I'm beginning to look upward. And it is the secret of self-forgetting. He goes, I have learned not to look more for self-esteem. He's looking for something a whole lot better. Something that's taken him out of the courtroom of public opinion. Performance fatigue, winning, proving, earning, constant identity, crafting, and refinement. See, the, Paul says, the trial is over for me. That's what he's saying. I have stepped out of the courtroom of public opinion. The trial is over for me. Why? Because in Christianity, the verdict is in before the performance ever takes place. Do you see that? In Christianity, the verdict over your life is in before you've ever done anything. This is what distinguishes Christianity from everything else. Romans 5.8 says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still performing or while we were still sinning, God sent his son for us. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Is it a gift you've got to earn or is it a free gift because of who Jesus is? 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin. Whose sake? Your sake. God was made sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then lastly, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Key phrase, in Jesus. You've got to be in Jesus for there to be no condemnation over your life. Because if you are not in Jesus, then everything hinges on you and your performance. But Christianity says somebody has taken your place. Life, death, resurrection for you. And when this takes place, you know what happens? You begin to forget about yourself. And then you start living. Because you were put on this planet to do things. Two, two things. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And when you see how much you are truly loved, that the verdict is in before the performance ever takes place, guess what? Freedom starts happening. Chains fall off. You start to see the world and relationships and shame and narratives differently. You know what Jesus is asking from you today? Stretch out your hand whatever that hand is for you. And what's that part of your life you got to stretch out? What you got to stretch out? He's going to meet you. He's going to love you. He's going to heal you. And what we got to pull in is the narrative of the gospel, right? The verdict before the performance. You know what Lindsay told me before I came up today? She said, I tell you, well done before you even preach. And I told her, that's what I'm preaching about. The verdict over my life is in before I did anything. What if you lived out of that? What if that became the operating system of your soul? Your life would be really different. You want that? Do you want to live like that? With the gospel permeating everything. We're here for that. 
Our groups are for that. Our church is for that. Counseling's for that. Community groups are for that. Our cohorts are for that. The spiritual practices that we are initiating as a church are for that, to pull it in. It's not about the practice. It's about pulling in the verdict. You are so loved in Jesus Christ. Before anything, he has forgiven everything. Let it go and stretch out your hand and pull in his love for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the gospel is big and it is good. It's easy for us to mute it, to think we understood it. We've been turned off by certain Christian voices, and so we have turned off Christianity. Help us to see the heartbeat of God for us through Jesus. There are things we have to learn. There are things we got to unlearn, things we got to let go of. Jesus, each person in this room could be stretching out their hand today. God comes where he's wanted. And we want you. We want you. That doesn't undermine grace. It speaks to spiritual hunger to the pulling in, to the letting Jesus add value. Jesus spoke value over this man's life, and he will speak it over each of our lives before we do anything. We come withered, broken, and messy. Jesus speaks value over our lives. We come with shame narratives that we've been hiding. Jesus speaks forgiveness over our lives. How do we know? Because he died. How do we know he died? Because history attests to it. Death could not hold our king, and resurrection is our narrative. You will bring us back to life. Jesus, meet with us as we stretch out our hand and we pull in your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.